On today's episode of 990 Talk, very excited to have with us for our interview, Dr. How do you pronounce his last name? Amir Pasek. Amir Pasek. Probably not how you pronounce it, but it's how we'll pronounce it. And he is the dean of the Lilly School for Philanthropy at Indiana University. Very excited to have him on. Hoping for a lot of insight into the world of training and educating people in the nonprofit industry. And we also have an Ask the Expert. Interesting question there. And none of this would be possible without our good friend Michael Knopf at Draper Kramer Mortgage Corp. 847-239-7804. 847-239-7804. Give him a call. Hey. Hey, Mom. What's up? Really, what I really want to know is how supportive Malka is of this podcast venture. Believe it or not, you're going to be really excited about this. But uh, we are probably not. Uh... If you and I are you're calling me about something. Okay. <laughs> well, that went well. <laughs> I think she hung up. <laughs> you guys are so bored. Seriously. <laughs> are you going to listen to it? Well, I don't know. I try to only listen to things that really relate to my life. <laughs> wow, that that hurts. Oh, that that's that is great. Right in the gut. <clears throat> I mean, you guys have nothing better to do with your time. I figured it's about time you do something. Now you're obviously very bored because you have no idea if it was going to actually be happening. Exactly. <laughs> We're calling it 990 yeah. Talk. A lot of people out there think that those who can't make profit work in nonprofit, and that may or may not be true. You know, we're just like two dudes in, in a world that most people are focused on chasing every dollar. We kind of just want to show people that there's a niche for guys like us. In the meantime, we're out to at least talk about what it means to work in nonprofit. You know, just like changing the world is more important. So. do me and you can do you, but I'm going to do what I love, do what I love. I'm going to do me and you can do you. Welcome back, welcome back, everybody. Nine ninety talk. Ari Strulowitz and Strulowitz back in the studio, and uh, we're we're chugging along here. We're chugging along. Excited to be here. Yes, um, it's a funny thing. I feel like when when we first started, so it was you know back at the end of the winter, so like my attire was like more winter based, and like now that I just got this new Nagila hoodie, it's all I want to wear. So I'm pretty excited. I check the weather every day. And next week, I'm looking at, like, there's a day with, like, a high in, like, the low 70s and a low in the high 50s. And all I'm thinking about is busting, is busting that out because I love good swag. Yeah, good swag is, is uh, good swag will go a really long way. Yes. It's always worth, it's oftentimes worth the investment. Yeah. So I'm a big swag guy. Speaking of swag, we actually need some 990 swag. Yeah, we got to work on that. We're going to be setting up an online shop soon. Yes, everyone could shop and buy stuff, even though probably none of you will get some merch. That's not true. Some people have asked me. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I think we should put together like a merch package and do some sort of online competition. I think people would like that. What What do you think people want to get? So it's a good question. Um, I think people like mugs when it comes to podcasts. Like podcast people like mugs. Okay. So that's cool. Um, I don't know. I think it'd be cool to get like a 990. We should probably think like cars. Because a lot of people are thinking about podcasts when they're in the car. So you need car magnets. So like a car magnet or some sort of stand there, you know, some little holder situation. License plate cover? Yo, that'd be pretty boss, actually. We'll say 90, well, 90, on the top, we'll say 990 talk, bottom, more life and profit. We could always do like the magnet, like a car magnet and just like throw it around people's cars. Although I think people are over that stuff. Speaking of just swag in general, like you really have to kind of, there, there needs to be thought behind it. Yes. Yeah. And I think that would make for a good board of directors. The best things? No, that's not fun. It's not fun to talk about the best. It's fun to talk about the worst. Yeah. Let's talk about the worst promotional items or swag that you would find at a trade show. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Are you th- now, let me just clarify. You've gone to trade shows. Are you that guy that, like, is taking a sample and a, and a promo item from every table, every booth? So not. You're not, right? No, because you need to carry it around. Because I am. I am that So guy. you, like, take the baggie and just, like, fill it up? I mean, which baggie? We can get there when we talk about bags, but yeah, I'm a yeah for sure. Oh, I'm so not. I mean, like, I will say this. Um, I was actually like, uh, I was cleaning for Passover, and I was like, looking through the swag bag from the Hill to our golf outing from last year, and there was like a thing of Oreos. And I think I ate them. 
Because, like, why not? I think one-year-old Oreos are all right. I mean, they were sealed, so it's no different. Well, things can expire. Yeah, they weren't expired. I was like, oh, okay, this is not bad. Also, I was just looking at the swag that was in there. So, you know, that was... uh, Food swag is good swag, by the way. Of course. I like food. Of course. Like, mints is always, like, you know, a, Mm -hmm. a a a good call. Okay, so board of directors of worst swag. I should just clarify, though. I do go home with a lot of swag from trade shows, and I mostly throw it all out. You don't like even give it to your kids? Well, I'll offer it to my kids. Um, and if they want it, great. And if not, garbage. Okay. You want to go first? Let's or do go it. First? Um, I'll go first. I'm going to jump right into the obvious one. And in general, my philosophy is there's probably any item, good or bad, is probably appropriate and great for certain businesses or certain industries. Um, so I'm not going to just like... Character like pens are not necessarily a bad swag item at trade shows. If you're going to give out pens, they got to be good pens. That's all. That's all I ask. When you say pens, they have to be fancy, or they have to have like like a light or like a, like good, a stylus. Oh, okay, I didn't want to get there, but no, they have to be just a good quality writing utensil because they're just the pen is just way overused. I know it's a cheap promo item, and it's like oh, it's easy. Let's just throw out a bunch of pens. They break. The cheap ones are not are not worth. You bring anything. up a good point because ultimately I feel like it's like actually the barometer for like a pen itself could be like either the best promo item or the worst promo item. Because if Correct. it's a garbage pen, like you're not touching it. If it's a great Correct. pen, you may use it for the next year. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. So and I and again I think that's the philosophy is don't don't overthink promo items. Just go with go with quality. And it's better. I believe it's better to have depends. I guess what industry you're in, but usually better to have less items of higher quality. Than to just like fill your table with like random stuff and it's all cheap. And pens, it's very easy to know when you pick up a pen and you use it if this pen is going to last or not. So if you're gonna do pens, make sure they're good. But honestly, I'd say probably avoid pens altogether. Okay. Unless like it's a trade show for like pens, like people who <laughs> for art. <laughs> yeah. No, for like writers, you yeah. know, like people that author books. Um, number Even two. Even though, by the way, I got news to you. Yeah. I guarantee you every book that's been written in the last 10 years or more. Was digital. Yeah. Good point. Go on. Okay, number two is the bag. I'm going, I'm just knocking out the obvious ones now, okay? Same thing when it comes to a bag. If you're gonna put out a bag, which a lot of people do. What kind of bag? Like a, a so good. I'm gonna get there because it's not a bad it's kind of a power move to put out a bag. Because if you have a good bag and people are gonna use the bag, so then they're gonna literally fill their bag with everything that they get at the show, leaflets, other promo items, and then you become the basically the most like visual yeah exactly seen item at the show so bags are not bad but you have to make sure you're the best bag there because if you're not people are if they even take your bag are just going to stuff it in another bag yep so same thing also a a pretty big go-to item just make sure it's good quality that's all so uh, i personally i do like the good quality drawstring bags um people like the tote bags but again good quality and and, and decent looking okay so that kind of segues into my number one which is, is i mean just in terms of the concept, my number one of the worst things um, for conference swag is off-brand stuff. Oh, okay. Because like you have a baseball cap, I'm not gonna take it if it's some random baseball cap that's like a ra- snapback garbage. You know, like I'm not gonna take that. I'm never gonna wear it. Like if you think I'm gonna wear something with your brand, like your logo on it, it's gotta have like it's gotta be something decent. Yeah, quality. Yeah. So that's true. So you have to it, no off-brand stuff. It's also not even worth the money. Like, you might as well if you're gonna get an item like that, spend more money and get something better. Yeah. So off-brand stuff is number one for me. Number two for me is stress balls. Because stress balls are just not in anymore. There's way other there's there's other ADD tools that you can use to just, you know, distract yourself. Like the spinners. Or like what's the new thing like the, I saw a thing that you twist? What was that? I, I don't know, but when you say spinners, you mean like those what are those called? It's like the spinners from like 2016, yeah. Are they called spinners? They have I a think different so. name. But you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, those little three ring things. Saying like stress balls, spinners. stress balls are not. They're just they're not in anymore. They're foam. They rip, you know. So it's just it's just not for me. Now again, if you're at a, a dentist a dentistry one. And by the way, they don't even yeah, help. Yeah, they're called fidget spinners. That's what those were called, fidget spinners. And by the way, they don't even help because if you're stressed, you know what you can do at work. You can day drink, but I don't condone that practice. What? <laughs> what are you talking? I'm just saying. Like, it's for another board of directors of the worst things to do in the office. Yeah. No, I mean, not worse, but like bad. Whatever. I'm just saying. Okay, we're I don't get done the practice. I'm just saying like, like there's more practical ways than to squeeze a stress ball. Okay. So your second one is just stress balls. Go on. Go. Okay. So my third one is actually just anything that's dated. Like be very careful with trendy items. 
So the first example I was going to say was a fidget spinner, but I have a different example, which is it goes like this. Um, One second. I wasn't saying the fidget spinner is, is the way to go. I'm just saying that stress balls are out. There's other ways to, I guess, relieve stress in the form of promotional items. There's like the twisty thing. There's like this thing that people play, play with now. It's like this long thing. It looks like a Laffy Taffy rope. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that was a stress item. I a lot so. of times they'll have a pen on the end of them. No. That's what I'm talking about. I cut you off. Go ahead. Okay. Well, number three was just, I think, trendy items. Be very weary of trendy items because if you're going to order, again, if in 2016 you ordered a thousand, I don't know, it depends how many you go through how often, but like fidget spinners, like they're kind of not in anymore. And even though someone may take a fidget spinner off your table, you look like a loser. If in 2020, you're, you've got a fidget spinner, a customized fidget spinner. Same thing when it comes to like the, the chargers. Like if you're using like an outdated, like any sort of like, like compute IT device. Or I would something. say even like a, like a USB uh, uh, device. Oh, good. USB device. Like, do you know how much memory they can now have on these? Don't give out a two gig USB flash drive. Yeah. Like what is cost this? Like what is this? 2010? A dollar. Right. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. anything that you, if you're going to give out an item and it, it may be specific um, to a specific time or like a trend, you got to be very, very careful. That's my number three. Wait, that was my number four. Three. That's my number three. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Okay. My number four item, it's just, it's a huge pet peeve of mine. It's completely irrelevant to every business I've ever seen give it out. And it is the lowest floor. Like it could be the biggest disaster item. And that's any keychain flashlight. Like seriously, keychain flashlights are the worst. <sighs> I can't. Oh, good. I'm happy. Keychain flashlights are the worst. Anything that needs a battery is usually a mistake. The flashlight is not like, first of all, do you think I'm even putting it on my keychain? Second of all, even if it was, I'm never going to use it. That's never going to be used. I can't In think 2020, of, the go-to flashlight anyone ever needs is on their phone. That's it. And it has to be strong because the phone has a decent light. So, yes. so if you're considering a promo flashlight, don't. Don't do it. Stay away from the promo flashlight. It's a disaster. Yeah. That was, it's, I actually thought that was too easy. I'm sorry that I, I stole that from you. That's okay. It was more keychains, but it's fine. I have a couple more. Oh, keychains in general, you're saying? Yeah, just because, like, why? Okay. Okay, number three for me is paperweights. Everything's digital now. People don't have paper on their table as much. I mean, if you depends on how organized you are, but why? You, you're making a face. I haven't seen a paperweight at a trade show in a while. I'm just saying, you're saying that you think paper's making a comeback? Paper's not making a comeback. No, it's not making a you comeback. Can argue, you can make an argument that a paperweight is a is is a is a is almost like the fidget spinner and that it's like it's almost gonna be like obsolete. It's gonna be obsolete, yeah. I mean I've never I've Listen, never, never environmentalists for sure want it to be obsolete. I've n I mean, have you ever used a paperweight in your life? No. Right. I, do people I don't oh, I don't know. I mean like if I use, I was outdoors, I use other I things to like like if I have a paper on my desk, like I'll put a pen on it to weigh it down, but I don't need a paperweight. I'm sorry. We're, there's such a breeze in your office that you need to weigh down your paper. I just, yeah, you're right. I don't know. That's a good point, actually. But there are, there. Are, I shouldn't say that there are businesses that are still very much paper based. Like, no, not people that write. That's like, not even true anymore. Well, they do. They they'll proofread stuff. Maybe like like public like, like publication. You probably proofread. They probably proofread it online. There's like companies that do like mass shredding. Yeah. <laughs> they don't need a paperweight. No, but they're also but they're paper focused. And lastly, this is probably a little controversial because people probably like these. Uh oh. And it's not a, it's it's not it's good in theory, it's not great in practice, and that's an umbrella. Oh wow. Because umbrellas are good. Especially if you have a high quality umbrella. But here's the deal. If I'm at a conference somewhere and I brought a rolly backpack, how am I getting it home? I'm not carrying it home for the next right. twelve hours in the in the in the airport. I hear that. So it's not practical. It really is for anything that's big. Anything that's like really big, I I don't know. My my go to umbrella in my car is a is one that I got at a, a show. But was it or local? Was it giveaway. Or you? Um, I think it was local though. I don't think. Okay, I that's the it. point. I you put it in your car. Fly with it. Yeah. You put it in your car. And you left it there, and that's great. But if I if I if I'm going to a conference in in New Jersey and I have to fly home with it, it's not happening. It's not You're coming. Not taking an umbrella. No way. I know, but I just feel like that's uh, especially because this goes back to the Trashmore. Back then, it was called the Trashmore. Of best things about business travel now is packing light. Right. So you I want to pack light. I don't want to have to bring other stuff. In general, that's right. The trade show issue of traveling through airport travel is is definitely a struggle. The smaller items usually will win. Yeah. Smaller quality items. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could take that advice to the bank, actually, for all those out there that are, are in the promo, giving away of, of promo items. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. cool.
All right, let's do the interview. We now welcome to the show sure. the Eugene R. Temple Dean and Professor of Philanthropic Studies at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at the University of Indiana, or Indiana University, Dr. Amir Passage. Welcome to the show. I'm very pleased to be with you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we'd like to start off just with that first question, sort of as an introduction to our listeners. If you could just tell us a little bit about your personal background and how you kind of got to where you are today. Sure, I'm happy, happy to do so. I'll give you a summary, and if you want to go into anything more depth, I'd be happy to do so. I am an immigrant to the United States. I came here to go to college and mostly ended up um, thinking of a career in, uh, in academia. I studied political science and international relations, and through a variety of circumstances, ended up um, working in philanthropy, first for a foundation, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and then for the Library of Congress in a fundraising capacity, and then moved to higher education uh, fundraising and also worked at an association called CASE, um, where I was in charge of their international uh, programs and international offices. And so through that combination of uh, academic background and practice and philanthropy, um, I uh, was asked to join this really interesting experiment, the world's first school of philanthropy um, that is building a new field, but also staying very close to the world of practice. Okay, that's very cool. Can you tell us a little, about, a little bit about the, the school program and, and sort of maybe the demographic of the students? Sure. So uh, the, uh, the the guiding philosophy of the school is really to look at philanthropy that's something um, uh, quite expansive. So thinking about the fact that generosity has helped build a human civilization, we often think of either technology or or the market or government and the laws emerging to make us ever more civilized for better or for worse. And then we forget the importance of voluntary work, our generosity to each other, helping neighbors um, doing things voluntarily, the movements that have that have upended all kinds of uh, uh, social arrangements that we thought couldn't change. And we're looking at that generosity as something that's been understudied. So there's this uh, expansive understanding of the importance of uh, voluntary action for what we might call the, the public good. And under that rubric, we bring together faculty from a variety of disciplines to, to look at that. And our students end up kind of reflecting that adventurous uh, approach to um, philanthropy. And, um, and they have a curiosity, they, a curiosity that goes beyond how do I do X, Y, and Z? How do I implement a program or how do I fundraise? Um, they have a deeper curiosity about, you know, how is the world made through our generosity to each other? What are its issues? What are its problems? Uh, how can it be applied to our current um, situation? And how can we understand our current predicament as well? So um, our students come from um, different uh, places. We have bachelors uh, who are mostly people from Indiana. Our masters uh, draw national uh, uh, folks from uh, uh, national and international um Origins, and we have a, a doctoral program as well, a PhD program that is about half international students who come and study different aspects of philanthropy. And then, in addition to our academic programs, we have uh, professional training programs that train fundraisers around the country and around the world. We have an institute on a women's philanthropy, an institute on faith and giving, the Lake Institute on faith and giving that looks at the intersection of faith and generosity. Uh, we all know that faith constitutes the largest destination for giving in our country and many other countries. And then our newest institute is the Mays Family Institute on Diverse Philanthropy that looks at generosity in underrepresented communities. And so there's this ferment of uh, kind of innovation in terms of uh, uh, deep thinking about philanthropy, but also these institutes and training programs that seek to connect this kind of deep thinking and research to um, to to the practical world and engage the practitioners that are trying to make a difference in the world. How many students are currently enrolled in, in Lilly Family School? We have 235 students from across our BA, MA, and PhD programs and uh, 20 full-time faculty and about 46 affiliate faculty who are in different schools across Indiana University. Now, these students that are coming to the school, are they, do they know what it is that they want to be getting into afterwards? 
or is it just kind of it's something they want to get into non-for-profit philanthropy work and they just kind of are coming to sort of see where it goes? There's a variety. I'd say some people know what they want to do. They want to do a career change. Maybe they've been a fundraiser and they want to go work for a community foundation or they want to get into the foundation world or they want to start their own um, um, or, or they want to start their own nonprofit and become an executive director. Or sometimes we have people who have already had a career and they come for an encore career training because they want to be a better board member. Um, or, um, and uh, some people come uh, with a more adventurous perspective. Uh, so because we have an online master's, people can stay in their careers and stay in their jobs and kind of do a, uh, do it on a more part-time basis. So what they end up doing is just digging a little bit more deeply, both just for their own curiosity to think about what's next for them, both in their organization and maybe in a different organization. And um, they just use that as a kind of a general curiosity deepening, but also thinking about what should be the next step if they don't already know exactly kind of where they're headed. What was like the what's the what was the inspiration behind the school? How did it get started and, and how did it get built to this point? Well, you know, it actually started uh, uh, before it became a school. Uh, there were two strands. One was the the practical training strand, and one was uh, research. So, um, research and discovery. The the practical strand began began with something called the fundraising school. So there was uh, about 40 years ago, um, there there really wasn't much of a, a fundraising profession, and there was this gentleman called Hank Rosso who who kind of bristled at the idea that fundraising was like salesmanship. He said it was really something different. It was really more of a calling, something that it had ethics at the very core of it, that it was really the gentle art of teaching people the joy of giving. And uh, um, so um, some of the, he, he started that on the, on the West coast and uh, some of the folks who helped establish the, uh, um, uh, the, the school here, folks like Gene, Gene uh, Temple and the, uh, a program officer, uh, Chris, uh, Charles Johnson at the Lilly Endowment, which is a big foundation here in Indiana, went to the West Coast and brought this gentleman here and kind of created the first professional training program for fundraisers, which we still call the fundraising school that, that has been in 40 countries around the world and really engages uh, people to think of, of fundraising as a calling, as a as a, as a fundamental part of, of leading and inspiring people to give voluntarily, but also to give of their time and, and, and their talent and their testimony uh, in, in different ways. So that was the practical side. And then a little bit after that, we had also started doing some of the fundamental research about, you know, how, how much do Americans give? Do we even know that? So we spent so much time gathering information about the commercial world or the, or, or the public uh, our, our public um, governmental world, you know, it's hardly a day doesn't go by when we don't have some kind of a news about a, a research product that tells us how much we're spending on goods and services, how we're doing with unemployment, you know, how how we're we're, we're counting different pieces of our public and and commercial lives. But there but there hadn't been that much research in terms of you know how much do we actually give. So we participate with something called Giving USA, which every year. Uh, measures how much Americans give, whether individually through foundations or through corporations, and then where that giving goes to health, education, social services, and so on. So we started doing kind of a fundamental research about what are the actual facts of philanthropy in the United States. And that began a tradition of actually starting to take um, take philanthropy seriously and, 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 and do some serious counting in terms of what's actually out there, what's happening. And then when, when we had a critical mass of people who came through the school over the years, many people who you may know as, as scholars uh, in different universities around the country, at some point had some connection with what was then the Center on Philanthropy at Indiana University. We supported doctoral students in different disciplines who had a curiosity about, you know, what is this generosity that we, we think we, we often thought was something that people did when we were still organized in tribes and then when formal society come to be, you know, we, we organize ourselves in terms of exchange or the authority of the laws and this generosity stuff was not very reliable. And yet we had scholars who were really interested in, in movements and humanitarian connections that ended up moving the world nonetheless. And so we, we started um, having this uh, kind of um, national and international network of scholars and then this practitioner connection and, and uh, some of the visionaries um, 
decided more than now 30 years ago that you know we should create a school and bring these different uh, different strands together to help prepare students with this kind of deeper understanding about what this sector is about, but also to, to continue the, the good research and to create the kind of career paths for scholars so that they could really um, focus on this as their core area of interest and not have to justify if they were a sociologist, economist, or a law professor that they would be spending a little bit of their time on this philanthropy stuff. So let's just create a place where people could kind of follow their their intellectual passions and uh, also connect that to improving um, the training and the education of people who want to make a difference in this world. So I personally am a development professional. And um, how did it feel okay. to say that? You got very excited when you said that. I'm proud of it. Good. That's, that's part of the game. I'm that proud of it. That is part of what we do. Because like, 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 like the doctor just said a minute ago that, you know, philanthropy and, and giving is you're giving people, you have, to, you, have to, you have to train yourself to think that people are always, you're, you're giving them the opportunity to give. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, at its core, it's a ethical thing. But my question is, what would you say to me? Like if, if, if let's say I was to bump into a recruiter for the school, what would be their pitch to somebody like me? Like what, what does someone like me have to gain? Well, you're a development professional, so you know. Uh, we first of all, we're, we're very pleased to to help uh, you know development professionals feel that they are part of a um, a respected and respectful and consequential profession, and so we we feel very happy to be able to to participate with some of the associations that also kind of elevate and help educate about the profession. But I think that what what you would do is understand a bit more about you know where your profession uh, came from. You understand how to how to how to uh, develop your leadership qualities. You de- understand how to think about where you want to go um, next in your career and how you can help educate others uh, who are in your organization or in your network about what uh, this profession can do and what all of its uh, um, kind of what, what all of its facets are and you know where, where does fundraising belong in in the long history of of philanthropy and how it's shaped my country. So I would say it would be both in terms of you, you would be able to develop kind of your, your, your leadership potential, uh, prepare you for that next step in your career, and also to give you that intellectual stimulation that is not only interesting in and of itself, but I, you know, we think in the academy that people who have a broader understanding of the context can help interpret that for the people that, that, that they want to lead and whose, uh, whose, whose work they want to add value to. Doctor, are there any other programs that are doing what the Lilly School of Philanthropy does in this country? I think there's many, many programs that do very similar things, and they have been growing, actually, over the last quarter century. Um, when you think of, think of schools of public policy that used to prepare students for uh, government roles, since our governments are mostly staying small or, or even retracting in some cases, careers in public service in the classical sense of working for the government are not as... As as um, uh, as plentiful as they used to be, so so there's actually been some research to show that the number of nonprofit management programs and public policy schools have been increasing quite a bit over the last 25 years, and then there's increasing number of philanthropic studies programs which are less popular because they tend to be a little bit more broadly focused. The way I was talking about, you know, we we allow we we think that curiosity should should um, drive the research and in many ways the way you think about your career rather than more of a managerial approach is what you would typically find in the public policy schools or in the business schools that also look at this as well. So what we typically say is, you know, we have a, a, a very good, one of the top uh, public policy schools in the country here at Indiana University, the, the O'Neill School. And what our students tell us, because they can also do joint programs, is they, they go to a place that's a public policy school to understand the how and they come to us to understand the why. So the number of programs is is proliferating. Um, what's different about us um, is that we take this broader, uh, curiosity-based approach to uh, all the aspects of philanthropy. It's not something that you get to once you kind of understand the world through the, the lens of uh, public administration, with, as, as happens in public policy schools, or as happens in business schools, right, where you come to... Uh, philanthropy after you've gone through the lens of commerce and business, we start with the lens of uh, generosity. And we're different from other philanthropic studies programs because we we do have that critical mass of kind of 20 of the leading scholars in the field in one place, whereas 
in, in many places where you have philanthropy studied, you'll have one or two or three people. So in many ways, we're, we're kind of a hub for the field. So that makes us different. So you mentioned that these types of programs are growing and they have been growing over the last quarter of the century. Do you believe that there are more college graduates and individuals that are pursuing a, a career in philanthropy, you know, philanthropic work and fundraising and non-for-profit? Has that grown also? It has, you know, everything is kind of now is bracketed with COVID, right? I mean, COVID is, uh, uh, you know, thrown into turmoil. So many, um, so, so, so many created so many, obviously kind of real tragedies and real hardships, but it's also thrown into turmoil in terms of what we are expecting to happen once, once we, once we come out of this. So, you know, typically what we see in, in these kinds of, uh, emergencies is, a, is an initial surge in the philanthropic world. And, and we see that because that's what happened after 9-11. That's what happened after Katrina. And then when there's a recession that can follow that, we see because of the, 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 the kind of uh, decline in resources, we see kind of a retrenchment. And that's, if you think of that just in terms of giving, although there's many more aspects to philanthropy. Um, yeah, the field had been growing. If you just look at your field of uh, development professionals, that, that keeps growing every year and, and it was forecast to keep growing significantly, uh, has a, uh, a, a great opportunity for people who are looking at industries where, where, uh, functions like development professionals have been forecast to grow. So I think that that will continue to be the case. Um, the foundation formation continues to grow, um, quite rapidly. Um, People are increasingly aware of philanthropy, even if it might be through a critical lens. So, you know, if you watch the uh, uh, kind of the newspapers have never quite uh, covered philanthropy as much as they are now, possibly since the days of Carnegie and Rockefeller. It's often with a critical lens, people thinking about billionaires having too much influence in our in our society. And, you know, thinking that they're using their philanthropy and some uh, not very useful ways to kind of skew our public conversation and public policies as well, which I think are very, very um, uh, kind of useful conversations to have. And uh, I think it is bringing more attention to philanthropy, not always the most well-educated one, but I think it's an opportunity to have conversations about these things. So, yeah. So I think in terms of real forecasts, in terms of the kinds of jobs that will be out there, philanthropy is growing. And then also kind of in interesting and important conversations, we're beginning to have a conversation about, you know, what should be the role of the philanthropy of the very wealthy and the very privileged in our society. So you mentioned before how, you know, a lot of, you know, I guess what, what the value, you know, of the school is that there's a lot of data, you know, and research. What, um, in your, in, what have you found in terms of the philanthropic trends amongst millennials and other young professionals today? Well, you know, that's, that's really interesting. We have a couple of faculty who look at that. We have a social psychologist who looks at empathy and empathy among emerging generations and the impact of, of technology uh, in particular. We, we have a, another sociologist who looks at and, you know, the way adulthood is changing among emerging emerging. Um, uh, emerging um, generations, the fact that so many kind of of the classical traditional markers of of coupling marriage and uh, home ownership, uh, ownership in general are being delayed uh, and uh, thought about differently among the emerging population. In our Lake Institute, you know, they look at the, the role of faith, the fact that faith is less of a role, formal, formal uh, faith affiliation is is less important for emerging generations millennials and 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 generation z as well and that has profound impacts on on the way philanthropy used to be conceived in general i think um, to overgeneralize a little bit there is a sense that millennials and, and and generation z do not have the same connection to formal organizations the way uh, you know, uh, Generation X and the Boomers did. You know the notion that when you do philanthropy, you connect yourself to a formal organization. There's much more affinity to movements. Think of the ice bucket challenge. Uh, think of uh, social media uh, mediated ways of connecting with people through crowdfunding and and and, and things like that. So this is, I think, a skepticism of formal organization and, and a sense of alternative networks uh, that people would like to connect. There's also a, a kind of a, 
a, um, a, a mismatch in terms of expressed um, expressed uh, uh, desire to be civically involved and then the behavior that we watch. So, so um, one of our alums uh, who runs the Do Good Institute at the University of Maryland is a leading researcher on volunteerism, and he surveys incoming <clears throat> students into into college, and he finds that they all really want to make a big difference in society. And then when we look at both you know, giving behavior in terms of monetary giving and in terms of volunteering for organizations, we see that they're far behind where their preceding generations were who were not as vocal or expressed as much of a desire. So so there's that mismatch there, but we're not quite sure is, if that's simply, you know, uh, younger generations not performing or whether they're finding different ways that we're not counting, you know, the the social media mediated ways of people engaging each other, helping each other that don't flow through a formal uh, 501c3, which is kind of how we count things now. They, they have to flow through the tax system. So, so we've got some, that's a, that's an interesting question for the future, but there's certainly changes in attitudes and changes in behaviors in the emerging generations. Doctor, once we're talking about generations, if you don't mind, you know, you probably have a pretty unique perspective sort of on what's in the pipeline. And a lot of our listeners uh, are either running non-for-profits or working for non-for-profits. From your vantage point, what do you think on the professional side, if we could sort of zero in on that? What do you think that the, the upcoming generations are going to be offering uniquely um, to the non-for-profit world on the professional side? You know, I think... Uh, I, I, you know, I think there's, they're going to be providing us um, new, new ways uh, of of thinking about connecting with each other. I think there's a uh, there, there's there's a agnosticism or an impatience with you know putting people into categories that I'm I'm in the for-profit sector, I'm in the nonprofit sector, or I'm in the governmental public sector. You know, we we used to think of people as as being different types that belonged in all of these. I think the uh, emerging generation just really wants to engage and make a difference and they'll cobble together, you know, modes. So we've seen, you know, we've seen things like impact investing, B Corps, uh, limited liability corporations that have a social mission. All of those things are kind of hybrids and cobbling together different different modes of organization that we have typically kind of kept in different sectors. So I think we see a lot, a lot of ferment of kind of a lot, a lot of cross-sectoral hybrid forms and people wanting to collaborate and learn from each other so that they don't duplicate things and actually get, get, get things done rather than, um, rather than reproduce institutions just for the sake of reproducing institutions. So I see that there's a, you know, there, 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 there's a, there's a lot of ferment and a, and a lot of possibility. And I think the, uh, the, the nonprofit sector is, is a, is a wonderful place to watch this from because one of the things that's distinctive about it is that it's always it, it, it's it's many many different kinds of organizations are always mission driven and they, they they focus on the mission as the as the the primary reason for what they do what they do and you see that that's being adopted increasingly by uh, by, by businesses you know that they they have to justify their mission not only to their investors but increasingly to their employees because their employees want to work for places that are not just earning a living but are making a difference so i think we're we're seeing a lot of ferment and uh um and and um i'm i i think it's wonderful to be at a school where an, an old dinosaur like me can participate in in, in watching how this uh, generation emerges does the school offer on, uh, online programs oh yeah absolutely that's our uh, actually our largest program is our online um graduate programs and they have been uh, growing the most, and those are the ones that we 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 designed this long before everybody decided to live on Zoom. So um, we've we've been doing this for a while, and the idea was that you know not everybody wants to uh, or can uh, uplift their career or their family or their obligations that they they have, and so we we've been designing and working on online masters and online graduate certificate programs. And that's where we're seeing um, kind of our largest growth in our students. What's like the, what's the bar of entry for the school? You know, like other graduate programs have a certain bar of entry. What's the bar of entry for a, for a school of philanthropy? I think uh, you, um, to, on, on the graduate program, you have to have a, 
a bachelor's degree and you have to have some experience or demonstrated interest in, 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 in the world of uh, philanthropy. And you also have to, I think, be uh, interested in the model of education that we have, which is multidisciplinary, kind of curiosity-based, where you understand how different approaches to the world come together. And, and your job is to develop a leader as a leader to be able to synthesize those. So, um, you know, we're not, um, you know, we don't pride ourselves on our excellence by proclaiming how many students we, re we reject. Um, we think that, you know, we find the right kinds of students uh, to come join us who have that adventurous streak, who want to um, dig into what they're curious about so that they can, um, you know, become a better leader and make a bigger impact in the world. I don't know if the dean's allowed to comment on this, but uh, I had a bunch of friends that went to IU, and it's definitely got a good reputation as being a very fun, social, I don't want to call it a party school, but there's definitely, <clears throat> it's been known to have a party or two. I just want to clear the air here. Are the Lilly School students uh, just as social as everybody else at IU? Well, you know, the, the, I, I think we, 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 tr we, we try to have a lot of fun. Uh, we think that, you know, humor and joy is, has to be part of uh, learning and living and, uh, and a career. But I, I'll, I'll tell you what, what's a big difference, and this is, this is a little bit confusing, you know, because, you know, Indiana is – is is far is often in um, not as well understood, but Indiana University is a very big university with seven campuses across um, Indiana, and the the flagship campus is Indiana University Bloomington, which is a beautiful bucolic, almost you know in a small town with forty thousand students, and um, you know that's that's where the great basketball is. That's where the the little 500 is the the the, the famous uh, bicycle race. That's not where we're located. We're located in a city. We're located in Indianapolis, and we're part of the second largest campus in Indiana, which is a, a Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, IUPUI. So we're actually not located in Bloomington, which is where you have that thick Greek life and that kind of classical. Um, uh, you know, big green campus. We're in a, a very innovative uh, urban campus uh, in Indianapolis uh, that um, that has a very different feel to it. Not as many residential students, so there are all some that is growing. So we we are we're not um, in in that kind of a Greek environment. It's more of an urban environment, which makes sense because that's where there's um, many nonprofits that we engage with, and we have a very different student. Um, uh, kind of profile when you think about our undergraduates. So, you know, often the undergraduate population is what defines a university. Ours has a lot of first-generation students, and we're over 30% people of color at IUPUI. So it's a very different feel uh, from our sister uh, campus in Indiana University, Bloomington. We do have fun, but it's more urban fun as opposed to kind of the classical campus Greek, Greek kind of fun that you might be thinking about. Got you. Urban fun is still fun. Uh, the school was ranked, I believe, number one in Newsweek. Is that correct? You know, there is no, I, I know I don't want to mislead you or your listeners. There is no really ranking for our, our kind of um, uh, work. So our sister school, the, the um, O'Neill School of Public Policy is typically ranked number one in the country for nonprofit management, but we're a very different animal. We do not have kind of an accrediting um, association other than the one that accredits our, our university uh, looking over our shoulder. We are the first school and often, rec excuse me, recognized as, as being a pioneer and having some of the best faculty that, you know, receive many of the awards and have wonderful publication um, records. So we are unranked. Our chancellor often, often, um, uh, uh, the, the head of our campus often jokes that we are number one because we are the only one. And uh, we do, we do serve that purpose somewhat when people, for example, from Tsinghua university in China wanted to start a school of philanthropy, they came and visited us to see how that might be done. And so we have a lot of international partners who look to us as they're trying to do kind of replicate the experiment that we have started. Are there any notable alumni that maybe we would know or that we should get to know? Sure, you know, so we have been at school for 30 years, so we don't have that many uh, alumni, but, you know, the, the, the folks who have been fortunate enough to achieve uh, areas of prominence, one of our very first PhD students was uh, is Jane Chu, who recently stepped down as the uh, chair uh, of the National Endowment for the Arts, 
Um, you also may have heard for the of, of the uh, uh, um, National Center for Responsive Philanthropy (NCRP) that tries to keep um, kind of uh, advocate for foundations to really be focused on. Uh, the folks who are the most disadvantaged in our country. So Aaron Dorfman, uh, he he went to our our school as well. Um, and uh, who else might I mention to you? Um, we also have uh, Derek Feldman, who is a uh, well-known researcher on on millennial cause-related behavior. So he currently consults with the Ad Council and and tries to understand more broadly. How millennials are moving away from some, something we spoke about before, you know, spoke about before the notion that they're moving away from formal check writing type of behaviors to movements and causes and thinking about their purchasing behavior and um, um, their employment as part of their civic, uh, um, their civic uh, lives. So Derek Feldman ran something called the Millennial Impact Project and now is working with the Ad Council. So those are those are kind of uh, three examples. And we have various vice presidents of advancement at uh, universities and, and executive directors of, of nonprofits as well. You mentioned before that a lot of the people involved in the school, I, I think it was students, were uh, actually looking to either develop um, their own sort of board member relationship with an organization and there's some lay leadership that's involved in the student body. Uh, what do you think today is the biggest obstacle or really hesitation more of people that are potentially looking to get involved as a lay leader uh, with, with a non-for-profit organization? I think it's education. I think people are just not uh, aware, as aware of uh, what's available and what's out there. We understand from research that one of the ways this is um, uh, modeled is often through, through, um, the behaviors of parents and friends. And, uh, you know, there's so much has changed in the nonprofit sector and uh, the issues that we're say, facing as a society are so challenging and different. And it's not clear exactly how kind of the, the behavior of the previous generation would map on and, and give you guidance. So I think it's, it's really education and, and not understanding, um, you know, what you could contribute to because we're often limited to kind of uh, our, the current networks that we have available. So it's kind of the mirror of, I'm sure you're aware of the fact that, you know, as people try to diversify their boards, they're, they're limited by the fact that all the board members will look to their own networks and think about, you know, who from my network would, 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 would be a good candidate for board membership. Well, that ends up kind of reproducing the same, um, the same composition of the board rather than reaching out to other communities that uh, would bring a diverse perspective and may actually reflect the, the communities that the nonprofit is trying to serve. I think you have something of a similar uh, kind of mirror image in terms of people trying to get involved. They're familiar with kind of what their parents and their networks have done but um, you know, some exposure to the research and the scholarship that we try to nurture could help people see that there there's a much broader array of possibilities and uh, rewarding service um, service opportunities if if they just learned a little bit more about the context of our of our rich civil society, which is not something that you typically hear about in many places. Wow, that's uh, that's fascinating. So look, we don't want to take up the rest of your day, but we really appreciate the time. Yeah, Doctor, this has been incredible, very enlightening, and uh, it's very cool to know that this type of program and education is out there. Um, and, uh, yeah, we really appreciate you taking your time out of the day for this. Sure. Visit. We have lots of events. We have uh, you know opportunities to get engaged with us, so you know, we, we love to hear from you and your visitors. All right. Thank you so much. Listeners. All right. Thank you very much. Thank Take you. care. Take care. Bye-bye. Is it time for me to go back to school? No, uh, yeah, I mean, listen, you could never, is that a thing, like, you can never learn too much? Probably, probably a thing somewhere. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can never stop learning? Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. You can never stop learning. Anyway, um, what were your thoughts? My thoughts are, I don't know, it's funny for me, because, like, I love non-for-profit work, and I, I love non-for-profit professionals, like, because I see it as being so cool and fun, and it, it, could have had the potential of being like boring and talking about research and stuff, but it's still pretty fascinating. Yeah. So for me, I think that is a big thing. I, you know, I, I, the research and data is, you know, it's something that I really probably should spend myself more time looking at. Um, what he said about 
millennials being more involved in you know movements instead of traditional organizations we definitely see that that's that's obvious you, you go anywhere in the news you go anywhere on social media that is certainly true um and i think that for traditional organizations that's going to be a challenge as to how we tackle that so yeah no i just yeah i think what i was trying to say was that i think maybe sometimes we look at our industry you know and our profession as like an art when really it is a science and there are numbers and there are facts and research that really drive a lot of what we do. So it's really cool to know that there's a, you know, a program and there's people out there that are dedicated to, to doing that research and to educating people on it. I think that's awesome. How do we create our, how do we like kind of like position our own organization as a movement? You're saying like, how do we get ahead, get ahead of the trend? I'm saying like, if that's the trend, we should, we should at least fake that we're part of it. I mean, I happen to believe that camps have a bit of a benefit. Why? Because it's it's got that community movement feel to it. If I want to go back to school, do you think that I can get stop it? Sorry. If if I want to go back to school, you think I can get the board to pay for it? Maybe you can get like a scholarship. Is it in the? I was just gonna say like like like. Do you think like the board members pay for their or like the organizations pay for people to go to graduate school? I'm sure they do, but absolutely. like absolutely professional development. There's yeah. a lot of a lot of organizations have that in it's their budget. Not ours. Not now. Maybe we will. We get some consulting in there. I think I offered whatever we don't <laughs> to do this out of the air. I think I offered to pay for someone to go um, to take like some some graphic art um, classes. That's like a real investment, though. I feel like we, yeah. I think that would pay off right now. Of course it would. We don't have to edit that out. That's real. I know. So that's those are my takeaways. He's a very intelligent guy. It's very cool that he. I mean, it's just it's a cool thing that he's dedicated his life to that. Urban fun. Urban fun. <laughs> Urban fun is still fun. All right, moving on. Okay. Okay, here's the deal. Um, okay, for today's segment of Ask the Expert, we are going to call uh, someone who actually got a shout-out on a recent episode. Hello? Hey, Dana, what's up? Oh, Ari? Yeah. Hi. So welcome to 990 Talk. Welcome. I just I just felt like because we gave you a shout out on last episode about I said like, you know, it was harder for the next sibling after me when it mm -hmm. came to going to school. So I felt like we should give you an opportunity to, you know, to, to meet the audience. So we this is a, a segment called Ask the Expert. I also mm -hmm. I want to add one thing before we start. Um, theoretically, my sister would also be qualified to answer this question that we're about to ask. But we uh -huh. called you. Yeah, but we yeah. called you. All right, you can hear us? Sure can. Okay, great. So here's here's the dilemma we have on the show. And it's that's the challenge. It's a challenge. So basically, we get a lot of feedback about the speed of, of our speech. Uh, some people will say that, you know, Srili talks too fast. Um, yeah. So they want to slow it down. Is that, is, that then, is that a diagnosis? One second. But then if they slow it down, <laughs> then I talk too slow. So, like, what do you suggest? Wait, what was that? If he slows down, then you're too slow? Okay, Ari asked the question ridiculous. The I'm question sorry. is like this. Yeah. Yes, he did. The, the problem that people have is that I speak too. Okay, so if you're a podcast person, you could listen. You would know that you can listen to a podcast at more than one one speed. You listen at one and a half right. speed times oh, two speed. Oh, got you. Okay. So people yeah. say Srilly talks too fast for 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 two speed. Ari talks too slow for one speed. Uh, mm -hmm. You guys got to figure that out. So we figured we'd call you. You're a speech therapist, and you could, you right. could tell us what to do. What are your credentials again? Did you actually you have your license or something? Yeah, I got my master's, and I'm ASHA certified and all that jazz, Ari. Did your master's take five years like Ari's? All right, stop it. That's a layup. Okay. Okay, Dana, right, you so hear the question. Your, yeah, you hear the question. You're the expert. What's the solution? Um. Yeah. So I'll start with Srilly. He's talking very fast, but that's okay. Because some people like that. And then there's other people who like people who talk slower because um, they like the slower pace. I think that you both are catering to your entire listening community. And I think that's ideal. I think it's great. So we should just leave it as is? Yeah, you're not solving the problem. Then it's, a, it's still a problem. Well, I, maybe you don't really have a problem. Dana, we're calling for... If we want, Dana, 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 Dana. I like the Dana, spin, though. if we were calling for psychological advice, we would have called your husband, okay? That... <laughs> Not that kind of psychological advice. No. <laughs> no. 
Okay, mm-hmm. wait. So basically your advice is leave it as is. Maybe she's right. Maybe we're not the problem. Maybe it's our listeners. Can you diagnose really speed talking? Is that an issue? Is that like listed in yeah. the- my wife, Oh, yeah. By the way, oh, my, cluttering. Time out. Cluttering. My, I was about to say, my wife claims that my sister claims that I have cluttering. Yeah. You couldn't just say that your sister claims that you have cluttering? My sister wouldn't even tell me. Okay. Cluttering's, <laughs> cluttering's a real thing? It's a real thing. Google it. Can, I, can you give us some exercises- so I can correct it? Yes. I'll give you a pacing board. I give that to some of my students who speak too quickly. It's like, um, it's kind of a form of uh, Chinese torture, but you basically have uh, like, let's say five squares in front of you on a piece of paper. And I'm doing it as I speak. You tap a square for every word you say with your finger to slow to slow down. Um, I'm going to make one of those. What are they called? It's a pacing board. You pacing board. That too. We're gonna get yeah. we're gonna get one of those in the office yeah. here. Is it like for like daily speech or like if I was like giving a production? Like when do I use it? Like I practice it's an with exercise. It? You practice with it. Well, it's an exercise, but um, when you're sitting at a table speaking into a microphone for however long you guys do this for, that's a perfect time to use the exercise. This is this is this is actually expert advice. Yeah. Oh, oh my god. Yeah. Can I just say? Can I just say? This is actually. The, let me just say. This is the first time that on the segment of Ask the Expert, we've actually called someone and asked them something in their area of expertise. I thought you guys were going to ask me something more related to my experience as a child being Ari's younger sister and not getting the fresh slate that he talked about. That's boring. We don't care um, about that. I think my expertise is, you know, alive and well there, too. But, all right. Just tell us. Okay. What was it like on one foot real quick? First of all, we could have called. Um, I think I think if we, if we really yeah. wanted to know about that, we would call Jack. No, Jack no, was the youngest. No, no. Jack was too far. No, Jack was too they forgot. They forgot. In another world. Yeah, it was no, a different. No, he was yeah. brought up in a different. Because in my family, in my family, I mean, the gap is not as wide between mm-hmm. me and my youngest brother. Mm-hmm. But like, I he certainly gets away with a lot more because I was the sacrifice. But you're saying Jack was even raised in the same family. Yeah, but this is a totally different issue. Dana, did the teachers really hold it against you? Is that true? Well, it would be like, uh, like Ari's sister. Like they'd look at me like. Like Ari's sister, and then like a chuckle. A chuckle. That was a given. Okay. It was like a, like I don't know if we are, are we allowed to name names. Uh, we've come pretty close to naming no, teacher we don't name names, names, but we try not okay. to. Okay. Yeah, you guys okay. try not to. All right, okay. Dana, thank you so much for your input. This is great. I'm gonna be bothering yeah. Sully about a, Thanks, guys. a pasteboard for Pacing a very long board. time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You should see his face right now. <laughs> Listen, I, I'm open to it. I, I'm open. To, I'm open. To, I'm open to correction. We'll try it. As, yeah. long as, as long as it's on the house. Is it pro bono? Yeah, this you're not going to bill oh, us yeah. for this. I mean, listen, shout out to CPS. I'm working remotely and I've got more time, so. Yeah, CPS is Chicago Public Schools for those that don't know, yeah. but we don't talk yeah. politics on the show. All right, Dana, thank you so much. Okay, okay. And uh, have a good one. Guys. Yeah, you got it. Great. Take care. M- Michael? Oh, my gosh, he answered. This is me. Is this the real Michael Knopf? The real Michael Knopf. <sighs> Wow. Wow. What's up, Surly? Well, it's Ari also, actually. I think he Hey, has. Ari. Hi. And you are being recorded. <laughs> oh, that's that's always a nice thing to hear. Yeah. Michael. I think actually state requires we tell you that. Michael. How come you don't <laughs> Do have... all states require that? No, not all states. I believe in Illinois you need to be notified if you're being recorded over the phone. Sorry. What if I would have answered my phone in Florida? Uh-oh. Oh, that's, that's a very good question. We are you? Oh, Michael, are you? Are you, are you ask, Michael, are you going to ask the expert for Michael? Are you second. an attorney or are you a mortgage broker? <laughs> I wear many hats, many hats, but I'm a mortgage broker, not an attorney. All right, why don't you tell all our listeners how much you love the fact that you sponsored the show? Oh boy, uh, I mean, I definitely love the fact that I sponsored the show. It's a fabulous show. Uh, I mean, as you know, I, I mean, I listen to all of them, every single one. I would never miss it. And I listen to it literally the minute they come out. And I mean, I'm just, no matter what I'm doing, I drop it all. I listen to 990 Talk. It's, it's. I mean, it's the best podcast I ever heard. I would not tell people that. I'll tell. Uh, yeah. Mm. Sounds a little obsessive. Actually. Sounds obsessive. It sounds yeah, like you're not like too overkill. busy. It sounds, like you're not, it, a little too much. it sounds like you have too much time on your hands and you're not busy closing every mortgage in town. Yes. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. I guess it's really a question of, you know, whether people actually believe what I just said is true. Right. It, but you, you, I, I'll tell it's you definitely something. true. It's a great podcast. I'll tell you're you something. an honest have guy. I heard, have you're I heard an honest them all? Guy. Sure. I'm not going to tell you that I haven't heard them all. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Here we go. Yeah, Michael, uh-huh. do, you know what, do you know what episode number this is? 
I mean, I might know, but take you should know. Why would you ask me that? We take, know. Take a step. We know. Take, take a, a guess. Take a step. Yeah, go for a guess. Hmm. 18. Let's go with 18. Oh, it's pretty close. It's it's actually pretty close. It's actually 20. That's pretty close. That's better than I thought. I thought I was gonna say like nine right. or ten. <laughs> What's <laughs> it like? Like, how do you deal with the phone ringing off the hook because of your sponsorship of the show? Uh, great question. Great question. I definitely try to answer as many as I can. Uh, you know, the phone. Um, people definitely do call from the show. And, uh, yeah, I try to answer as many as I can. I do have an assistant and she certainly helps out and, um, you know, try to get back to people obviously as much as possible, but, uh, all right. <laughs> Michael, 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 do you think, do you think maybe the fed, the feds love the podcast and because of that, and they just want to pay it forward to, they just lowered the rates. Well, <laughs> what you just said about the fed and lowering the rates and connecting that to mortgage rates is a uh, is a very loaded uh loaded question because okay, we don't care, we don't really care, we don't care. Right, you're the man yeah. is bottom line everyone should call you if they're interested in knowing more about refinancing or a mortgage and blah blah michael blah, this is actually blah, blah. we were actually supposed to michael, michael we were supposed to actually refinance today till you said i have to wait till the 23rd that's between me and you really and the listeners. And apparently another few hundred and people. apparently and apparently <laughs> however many people listen to this podcast. Yeah that's but like true. I said I'm refinancing with Michael Knopf Ari's be fine with Michael Knopf. And you should too. Give him a call. All right, everyone. That was our show today. Thanks for coming along for the ride. And uh, is your sister considered a homie? Homies looking. Homies looking. Homies looking out for me. Yeah.